This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. Rock. Paper. Pixels. I am Patrick Avioli, and welcome to Rock, Paper, Pixels. The focus of this podcast is to discuss how our need to communicate has created a new economy in the worlds of information, education, promotion, entertainment, and the arts. Our guest today is a four-time Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist and the director of the photojournalism department at Rochester Institute of Technology. He is also the official photographer of The Who and author photographer of a new book, which he'll tell you about. I don't have the quality to discuss what that is about. Please welcome Professor William Snyder. Hello, William. How are you? I'm great, Patrick. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Uh, I want to talk to you today about a topic that's all over the place, and I was kind of told that you would run with this for a while. Uh, the <laughs> well, first of all, full disclosure, the only way I got to a person of this quality was because his wife and I went to high school together. Uh, trust oh, me. It's, well, and she's it's, had lots of nice things to say about you, and, and – Look, I'm I you can you can reach me any old way you want. No, I know that William. I know that. But I uh I told a few people at school who the guest was this week. I told them it was a four time Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, the director of your program, photojournalism at RIT, and you're the official photographer of the Who. And they just kept staring as I was talking. <laughs> so I'm really seriously no joke and no patronizing. I'm really honored that you took the time today. Today's time. Thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. Seriously. Today's topic, fake news. And I used a little term, moving the pyramids. And that's something mm -hmm. we used to say back in the day at McGraw-Hill, that you can't really, shouldn't be touching those photos, boys and girls. And the, the angle the angle we're going to use today is, has digital opened this door up way too wide? And how do you, mind, how do you hold on to your integrity? In this kind of uh, ease of use space, it must be so tough, especially for the photographer and obviously for the viewer. And this whole issue of not knowing what to trust, not knowing what you're looking at anymore, and it's really, uh, it's really taken a bit of a hit in the overall world of altruistic uh, values. I wanted to ask you. Uh, I like to start off with a little Grateful Dead line, and I am not a deadhead. But I think it's a great line. What a long stretch trip it has been for you. And this whole analog to digital thing. I wanted you to tell us about your path in this space of visual storytelling. How many years have you been in it? And when did you start? So if you give us a little, a short bio, career path, and we're going to be talking about your own projects as well, William. Okay. Well, the short version is this. I... Uh, after much, much, much analysis, the reason I became a photographer is because I grew up, uh, really two reasons. I grew up uh, around visual storytelling. You didn't call it that back then, but I grew up in an era of uh, Life Magazine, National Geographic, Look, you know, uh, Saturday Evening Post, uh, the Evening News. Keeping in mind, I grew up in the 60s uh, or in the, in the early 70s, and I could watch the bombings in Vietnam live. I could watch the uh, civil rights protests live uh, over dinner. And so I saw a lot of the world. I was, a, uh, I was a kid growing up in a small town in northern Kentucky. And wow. all of these visual things brought the world to me. So th there was that. And then on the other hand, my mother always had a camera. She was always shooting pictures of us. And it wasn't video. It was film back then. And, um, and what I've also come to understand is that my brother was killed when I was very, very young uh, by a drunk driver. And so most of my memories of my brother really uh, revolve around a shoebox filled with pictures and a couple of home movies that my mother made. So there was sort of this idea that, that became instilled in my head very, very early about visual, uh, visual storytelling. I loved comic books. I loved movies. So by the time I was 12, my parents indulged me and bought me a really good camera. And 
shall we say, the rest was kind of history. Uh, the local newspaper, my parents knew people there, and local photographers took me under their wings. I began to take pictures. I began to work for the paper. I actually went to work for the paper when I was like 14 or 15. My mom used to drive me drive me to assignments, or I rode my bike literally until I got my driver's license. Amazing. Uh, oh, once, my God. Once I got my license, they had this newspaper, which had beautiful reproduction for that day and age. Uh, they had one and a half photographers, and once I got my driver's license, I became the half photographer. And I did that through my senior year in high school, quit there because I wanted to have some fun, and the load became too much when I became both one and the half photographer. Um, went went through a series of internships and working at, uh, at the paper in the, in the next big city over. Ended up at RIT, got my BS in photography here at RIT, went from RIT to Miami, uh, worked for a small paper there called the Miami News, which was the afternoon paper, which was a great place for me to be because there were only five or six of us on the street there, and yet we were doing 75, 80% of what the much, much, much larger Miami Herald was doing. Worked there for a couple of years, and then I moved to the Dallas Morning News. And at the Dallas Morning News, I was a photographer, and then ultimately I became an editor, and then finally I became uh, the director of photography. Did that for a couple of years, and then took a buyout uh, because they were offering me a lot of money. It was Good. unexpected. It was unexpected for the newspaper. They were actually rather unhappy with me when I took the buyout. Uh, I thought I would go to a smaller paper uh, so that I could have more direct contact with the photographers and photography again. Because at that point, at the morning news, my department was 50 people under me. Wow. And in uh, a million-dollar operating budget. And, and I wanted to go to a smaller paper and, uh, you know, midsize. And I interviewed at a bunch of them, some of them pretty well-known. And I decided at that point, back in 2006, is that nobody knew what they were doing. <laughs> they were expecting <laughs> video to be the... Uh, the, you know, the end all and be all and the magic bullet that would solve all their economic woes. And I just didn't want to get involved with that. Uh, I had ideas, but people weren't really interested in my ideas. They were interested in me. How soon and how quickly could I get video up and going? Absolutely. So uh, I decided I would be a freelancer. And uh, sort of to add a little bit to the fun, when I left the Dallas Morning News in September of 2006, everybody said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I have this side business where I shoot hockey pictures. But the first thing I do know I'm going to do is I'm going to go on tour with The Who in, in November. And, of course, that's always a, a, a really great way to, to break the ice. I so I figured say. I would just be a freelancer, you know, and, and bounce around and, and, and shoot my hockey portraits and a few other things and, you know, and work for the who here and there and maybe some other rock bands. But then this opportunity came up to, to get to RIT and to come in here and teach and ultimately take over the, the photojournalism program, which is what I did. I started in the spring. I kind of did a, 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 a sort of a trial period during the spring of 08, started in the fall of 08 and have been here ever since. And, uh, just also to bring things sort of full circle, when I got here, I was the youngest member of the PJ faculty with least amount of tenure and the least amount of teaching experience. Now, I'm the oldest. I have the most teaching experience and the most tenure. So it's amazing how things change. But I've been able to assemble an amazing uh, faculty, uh, three other folks, and I'm very proud of what we've been, been able to accomplish in when it comes to academics in a relatively short amount of time. So. Uh, first of all, I just want to say you mentioned three of my family's favorite things. You mentioned yes. uh, education with me, of course. Uh, you mentioned the who, and mm -hmm. we could do another three hours, I'm sure, easily on that experience. Uh, my wife and my son are huge music people. I mentioned that in our little chat before, and you mentioned hockey. Yeah. This house on New York Ranger night, I just go in the den, and usually it's the dad running around, right? My yeah. son, my daughter, my wife, his girlfriend, unbelievable in the living room. You would think the cursing, the screaming, the yelling, 
in the middle of the game. I'm like, really? This is enjoyable. well. I can understand that if you're if you're a Rangers fan, why you would be doing all of those things. I mean, because it is the Rangers, and you know, oh God, really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, having having sort of my wife that you know is the one that introduced both, starting with my children. She taught them to skate. And she taught, uh, she introduced my oldest son to hockey when, when I was on a fellowship at the University of Michigan. Uh, my youngest son actually played at a pretty high level. I saw uh, that. He ended up playing that. juniors. He ended up playing juniors, but he, he didn't have the physical presence to, to dump up, jump up to D1. He was tall, almost 6'1", but about the heaviest he could ever get was about 175. Skated like the wind, could pass stick to stick at full speed but just was getting beat up physically so I became a hockey fan because of that and because I kind of started out you know in Texas I'm okay with the stars uh, but I um, I'm actually more of a um, I have to admit I'm more of a Blackhawks and um, (laughs) Pens fan and have, you know, and just to cause problems, I've always felt that the Rangers were vastly overrated <laughs> only okay. because they were in the media center there in New York City. Well, you would so know there that. it is. I laid it all out on the table. Your family's going to hate me, but I mean, you know, I just had to say it. But what a perfect segue, William. You yeah. ended with the word media center. New York City, mm-hmm. right? And I, I was going to ask you a bunch of questions, but I think just the natural conversation we're having answered mm-hmm. all of those. Uh, I'm a, I keep saying this, and I hope you don't mind, but I'm kind of amazed at your career. I think it's a, an amazing testimony to you and to what you've done. It's, it's, I don't know, you know, we have this tendency not to look in the mirror the right way. You know, we kind of look in the mirror and see the 12-year-old kid. But I guess my perspective, looking at someone like you, looking at someone like you and your work and your career, it's pretty awesome. And I don't know if anybody tells you that enough. You know the joke about <laughs> academia? You know, why is everybody so nasty? Well, because the stakes are so low. Exactly. Uh, you know, so you did some wild stuff. I mean, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did contact my museum director, the person I'm friends with, not my museum, the LIU uh, Steinberg Museum, Barbara Applegate, and I, I did ask her uh, if she would like to talk to you, and the first response was yes. So you should be getting an email from her or a phone call, or whatever you like. Uh, the fact I've been looking at some of your work, I looked at the site a little bit, I've been watching some of your stuff. This is amazing, Elvis Costello, Pete Townsend. Uh, it, it's, I'm looking at these pictures, the Eddie Vedder uh, forward, I think you said it was, mm-hmm. and he was mentioning yes. you. And you, This is stunning, but, you know, I don't want to keep doing that to you. I know that's a little That's awkward, okay. It's that's amazing. Okay. It really is. The real well, question. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, the funny thing about this is I feel like, you know, this is, I could possibly be on the cusp of sort of a different kind of interpretation of my career. Yeah. Because, you know, most people now know me and are talking to me about this who stuff, which yeah. I've been doing since I was a kid. I mean, there are literally pictures in there that I shot when I was in high school and when I was in college. Uh, but my career was was built on totally different things. Yes, I, um, I saw, I believe it was Romania. Yes. Uh, I would do a little I research. Did. You know, in the, yeah, this well, that's quite all right. Well, unfortunately, I'm in the midst of redoing my website, so you didn't have that as a as a resource. Material. No, but I, I looked but, you up on Google and Google Images, and I saw some of the stuff you had done. And yeah. you know, this is pretty cool stuff, dude. I mean, this is not. Well, I appreciate you know, that. I appreciate I'm, I'm being that. serious here. Uh, I want to jump to fake news because I don't want to take sure. your entire day no. here. Only uh, like I do teach uh, the history of visual communications. Mm-hmm. I, I'm pushing for a history of digital mm-hmm. design and, and the importance and the effect it's had on yeah. everything, society. Uh, my yeah. third book, that sounds like a real idiotic academic, huh? My third book was going, my fourth book, excuse me, is going to be called uh, Tower of Babel, A Study in Cognitive yeah. Dissonance, about mm-hmm. how this has ruined civilization. Now, I've made my living, bought my house, paid for my family on technology yes. from the earliest days. 85, I had my first Macintosh. 
Uh, I've lived it for the last 31 years. I love it. But again, as we can always count on humans to mess it up. Mm -hmm. And today, with the ease and availability of digital, cameras mm -hmm. in everyone's phone, uh, how damaging this has been, my viewpoint, I'm not going to speak for you, my viewpoint mm -hmm. is this has been tremendously damaging, almost like birth, you know, another Incanabla. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my second book was called The Digital Incanabla, how mm -hmm. this digital experience ruined or changed or morphed or twisted the traditional integrities of news, obviously, but also advertising, also if it ever had integrity. But I every was gonna say, come on. <laughs> All right, back off. I'm an ad guy. I, I actually am sitting here in my den doing this and I'm uh, looking at six trophies for my advertising student work. I do love advertising, but obviously that was the easiest one to fall, right? So mm -hmm. how, how badly has, has the ability to go digital so quickly? And I'm not really talking about the technology, I think. What I'm, what I'm talking about, and don't start yelling at me because I know every photographer I've ever spoken to does, fallen soldier Frank Kappa. That has yeah. been, that is in the talks that, that was staged. Uh, Stiglitz, uh, Times Square. Mm -hmm supposedly mm -hmm. staged, but not staged in the sense that anyone got hurt. Uh, the earliest days of Matthew Brady. Uh, and he, mm -hmm. I like to explain to my students that he did it uh, to emphasize the horror of the war. So there was no malice. And almost all of these, there was no malice, except mm -hmm. for William Randolph Hearst's statement, right? You give yeah. me the pictures and I'll give you the war. So today it's given us another war. Facebook, images that people believe. So how, yeah. how you know, your arc comes from analog, right? Of course. And now right. we're in a world of digital, of course, right? And mm -hmm. what have you seen with photojournalism with the entree of digital in the sense of integrity? But also we could talk about workload of the photographer, which I was around Newsday in those days. I worked there for a couple of years. I knew those guys and the horror they mm -hmm. went through when they were supposed to be videographers, photographers, but I really want to talk mainly about uh, digital, the changeover mm -hmm. from analog, and fake news. I'm sure you have a few opinions on this. Am I right? Oh, I'm full of opinions, <laughs> just like everybody else yeah. in the world. So let me let me just start with this, please. Let me let me let me back up a little bit and 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 preface and put some context into what you're talking about. Sure. So you, in fact, talked about quote unquote fake pictures that preceded digital. So whether you meant to or not, the basic idea is that this has been going on regardless since the invention of photography. Yep. Um, you know, if you want to talk to, about going all the way back to Brady, you know, there's, there's even, uh, I forget the guy's name that made the picture of the, of the shadow of the Valley of death with the cannonballs. Yep. There is supposedly the, um, the, the notion that he put the cannonballs all over the all over the road to to tell the story, so you know creating these images is nothing new. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Eugene Smith, but Eugene Smith, you know, ultimately was known for not only directing pictures that he made, but also using the limited darkroom techniques that he had, he altered pictures then too. His famous line was, let truth be the prejudice. His, his notion was, I'm trying to get at a, at a larger truth here, and I'm trying to tell a story here that reverberates and resonates with, with everybody out there. So, so this sort of manipulation, be it in, in, in pre-shooting, during shooting, or post-shooting, has always been there. I, as a, as a, as a student at RIT, there were all kinds of things that I learned that I could do in camera and in the darkroom that I had the ability to do. And that was one of the things that, that made me marketable when I came out because I, the newspapers I worked for did a lot of studio work. And so I had the ability to give a person, you know, six arms instead of two, and it looked pretty, pretty straight. I had the ability to put wow. things where they weren't supposed to be. Wow. Because I knew how to do it technically in an analog era. Uh, digital, 
digital to me, as far as that's concerned, just makes it easier. Right. So the ease, Bridged you know, it, it's just there. It's just there. So what, what I think is really more important to talk about here is ethics. Right. And, and, and not just the ethics of what we're doing. It just so happens I read an article yesterday about, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the decrease in ethics among young people and how it's not really being taught. Uh, a professor was talking about how he, uh, he did a little test in his classroom. And what he did was he presented his students with the notion, and this was in high school, I believe it was. He presented the students with a notion of you have a friend who has committed a heinous crime, you know, caused the death either directly or indirectly. I can't remember exactly which of, of a, you know, uh, of someone else. Um, what do you do? Do you turn them in or do you keep quiet? And he said the overwhelming majority were you don't snitch. Right. And so, so that points to, you know, a change yes. in ethics. Yes. The other thing has to do, you know, when we look at, at business folks. Oh, my yes, God. Yes, they are sometimes uh, improperly maligned, but, but, you know, they're being taught more and more and more, and you hear it bubble up more and more and more that, look, I'm out to make money. Great. And whatever it takes to make the money and hit the bottom line and then increase my profits you know, proportionally every year is what needs to be done. And sort of the cost of it, the social costs of it, it doesn't really matter. Well, this so, is Gordon um, Gecko. I'm sorry? This, this oh, yeah. Is, well, greed is good. Greed exactly. is good. Exactly. So, so what we're talking about here is, is we're not talking about the digital age per no. se. We're well, talking we're, about the ethics behind the operators. Yes, there's an ease. But yes. think of it this way. Think of it this way. You know, you have the exact same thing, whether you're talking about visual communication or you're talking about just plain old writing. That's right. Because uh, to me, what, what I tell people is, is that this cell phone has, for good or bad, quote unquote, democratized. That's the word. Uh, visualize, you know, making images. But in the exact same way that the printing press and yes. then ultimately the, the word processor, democratized writing. As you know in your history, yes. you know, there was a time that only the most learned and the, yep. and the most important people could read or write. And Next. then you could read or write, but then, you know, you had a pen. If you could publish, then that was even more. Yep. So the point is, to me, they are tools. That's right. A, a, a cell phone will allow you, uh, well, let's say, will allow any of my mother-in-law of all people my mother-in-law it will allow her well she's 88 years old 89 you know, 89 she just had the party 89 okay 89 isn't that sad that you know that better than i do well because i'm tapping years old. amy to, to get me yes, Steve well there you go <laughs> exactly um she can take a a, a clear Reasonably well exposed, yes. in focus, sharp, yes. reasonably color balanced picture, yes. and send it to 50 of her closest friends around the world yep. in a minute. That's right. Now, wh when I was a kid, every <laughs> single one of those steps required talent and, 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 a, and a lot of training. Right. But, and this is what I tell the kids that I have, is like, look, if all you can do is sort of that, then why would I hire you, who, has, right. who is incurring a lot of debt? Right. Why don't I just hire your mother, who has no debt, <laughs> does it for fun, and she's not going to charge me anything? Well, the reason is, is because it's talking about professionalism. Number right. one, it's ethics in my right. business. In journalism, right. it's ethics. That's right. That, that you know that when you get something from me, a trained professional, supposedly it is what happened That's right. and it has not been tinkered with either in, in the lead up to the making of the image, the actual making of the image or in the post processing system. So there's number one, number two, there's the ability to do it on command. Mm -hmm. And number three, there's the ability, there's repeatability. Well, and all on. of those things 
are, are things that amateurs cannot and do not do for the most part. Well, I'm making a sport. Yeah, I was going to say making a hockey reference here, William. Yeah. The, the, the great one, Gretzky said, I don't skate to where the puck is. I skate to where the puck's going to be. Exactly. So if you're a really good photographer, especially a photojournalist, I would imagine the anticipation of what's coming <clears throat> and being in the right spot. This is built, this is taught, built in, repeated, and it's just, yeah. I would imagine, gotten from hanging around with people like you. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's, we put them through their paces. As, yeah. as a friend yeah. of mine and a colleague of mine says, you just need to find a place to stand now. Well, but what place? Well, exactly. And what camera, what That's lens, right. Right. What, what exposure, what ISO, what moment, what framing. That's right. You know, and all of these other things that go into it. As I pointed out to my sports photography class, which contains a couple of kids that aren't photojournalists, yep. the first game that we went to was a local high school game. And I said, what you're going to see is you're going to see a few people there who are parents and or friends, <laughs> and they have as good or better equipment than you do. And all they are going to do is they're going to use all the auto stuff in the camera and they're just going to push that button and let the camera do all the work. And they're going to make reasonably good pictures that years ago would have been fine because that was hard to do. Right. What are you going to do to separate yourself from them? So, so, so back to this whole fake news thing. Um, you know, what this has done is it's made it easier for people to fake things. Right. But what we are beginning to discover mm -hmm. or what is actually happening is, and this is for me a good thing, is that now people question what they see more and more and more. Do they question it enough? No. No, not yet. But they, but they, question, they question the source of it. Yep. So, you know, and that's one reason you, you in, in the run-up to this, you brought up the notion of citizen journalists. Yep. And there were a lot of people in my business that for a relatively long time, but actually now brief period of time, were touting this citizen journalism, pardon my French, crap. <laughs> you know, when you're at a, at, a, at a breaking news thing, you know, a bomb just went off or, a, or cars yeah. just ran in each other and somebody's making pictures, that's one thing. That's right. Because that's just a matter of immediacy. Yeah. And, and, and I don't have an issue with that. Yep. What I have an issue with is anything other than that. Yep. Because once you get deeper into it, then all of this stuff that I've been talking about, especially the ethics of it, then come into play. Right. I'll give you an example. The biggest, one, of the, one of the biggest things, events that sort of made the journalism interest, industry sit up and take notice of, of citizen journalists was the Arab Spring. Yes, because I, when that originally happened, that's those people out there in the middle of that right. were just capturing images of what was happening and they were transmitting them all over the world. And so we were able to see in real time a lot of amazing things happening. But a year later, I think it was either a year or two years later when there was sort of a, you know, Arab Spring Volume 2, right. many people were then doing it, but slantedly. Right, Mubarak. They, they had become they had become savvy enough. Yes. To be able to to take images that were pushing a particular point of view, not just documenting what was happening. Because so we already, go to evil. You already quick. had this. Yes, and so that so that's the issue that I have with citizen journalism, and I have with a lot of this stuff. Now. Let me give you an example. Um, I belong to a group called the National Press Photographers Association. Sure. And it is, um, it is known you know, to represent more traditional uh, print-bound broadcast journalism and sort of kind of stuck in some old ways. We're, some of us are trying to get them out of that. And we've also been known to be somewhat school-marmish about ethics, perhaps overly reactionary, and perhaps just two finger wagging. But my whole point right now is, why not make that former, what could almost be a detriment, become a strength? Because in this day and age, Necessary. if we as an organization are pushing our members to uphold the highest standards of ethics, then, you know, 
we're going to become beacons of truth and not fake news. Right. I'll give you another example of, of why this is coming to an head. There is another contest um, out in the world called the World Press uh, Photographers uh, Contest. And in the last, I don't know, five or six years, they've begun to court a lot of controversy because they are allowing new ways of telling stories, which become far more interpretive and have become far more, shall we say, touched. So a few years ago, there was a, there was a photographer who entered some photographs in a, as a story, quote unquote, a story that told, uh, that, that, that talked about this, uh, this town, I think it was in Italy. I really don't remember. Um, Doesn't matter. But there was some controversy around both what he wrote under the pictures and some of the pictures that he made. And there were, there were accusations that some of the pictures were set up and arranged. They might have reflected what he thought was the truth, but, you know, they were still set up. And there was a big uproar that went up. The contest didn't didn't go after it really, really hard. But then what happened was the mayor of that town wrote in, you know, posted on a blog or wrote to the contest and said, look, this is not true. This does not happen here. I can, you know, I can prove it. We have the statistics. You know, this picture is not real. Now, on the one hand, there were all these people that felt that this, that this person wasn't a real photojournalist and was just practicing art which is okay, just don't call it photojournalism. And in the process of practicing their art, they had, he had entered this in a photojournalism contest, and they were really excited that he had been outed and that he was disqualified and that the contest, you know, said, bad boy. Well, my problem with that, and I've been saying it ever since, is that, whoa, 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 do you realize what just happened? You had a politician questioning the veracity of an entry in a photojournalism contest and being right. Does that sound kind of like a prelude to what we're going through now? Sure does. So I, you know, that, that's, that's the thing that, uh, you know, part of my, my thing right now, and it's, it's interesting that you should be asking me about all this now, right now. Yeah. Part of my thing right now is ethical training and, and, and doing this. I have always had the question, what is our job as photojournalists? Sure. Is our job to document exactly what we see in front of us and tell that story as best we can? Objectively. Or is our job to tell the story as best we can? Now, there's a fine line between those two things. Mm -hmm. And, and in, in when I first began, that second question was answered more often than not, mm -hmm. that that was the answer. That's what Gene Smith did. That's what a lot of people did. They arranged things. They had people redo things, mm -hmm. you know, because what they were trying to do was tell that story to the as world. best they could. Yes. And, and they would say that it was honestly. Yes, he, this person was doing this. I just had them do it two or three more times so I could get a better angle on it. But the difference well, he, today is, right, that exactly. that story is released globally. And I'm not well, I'm talking it's about not, it's not even it's not even it's not even the, the, it's not even that it's just the fact that, look, our ethics have evolved just like all our ethics. I mean, look at me, yeah. too. Look, yeah. you know, I don't know about you, but I grew up and I love James Bond. But, you know, oh, yeah. you look oh, yeah. at his treatment of women in the early oh, films yeah. and that doesn't go over now. It's and, and I understand that we evolve. Right. So th this business has evolved. Mm hmm. And it's, it's actually become somewhat schizophrenic. There is there is a there is a part of the photojournalism documentary photography business industry that believes that one of the reasons that we are quote unquote dying, which I disagree, um, is because we are being a little too pedantic about ethics, and that we're not allowing individuals to express themselves more. There's well, no there is no expression to truth. Well, truth exactly. Is, and, and, truth and, is truth. Well, you know, I can be a, now I can be an academic and I say, okay, well, you know, it's like Rashomon, the film. It's like yeah, you can yeah. put six people in yeah. a room, ask them what just happened, and you're going to get six different interpretations. Okay. But that's the point, is if you train someone ethically, if you train someone to be uh, an observer, 
And, and, and their goal is to be as honest as they possibly can, given everything, then I'd still rather look at what they're doing than someone who just comes in and says, this is what I think the story is. And I'm going to make images that depict what I think it is. So you literally tell my students, it doesn't matter what we think. It's not our story. It's not my story. It's the subject story. It's the camera. We're just a vessel. We are a vehicle and a vessel through which right. to tell the story. That's it. Well, it's you a partnership. Are, you are actually part of the camera. More well, so, we try to be. Right, more so than moving the camera to a spot of your own subjection. Well, right. you want the you camera. You try. Again, right, you right, try. Right. You if try. you are I mean, trying, you Liam. I mean, and, and that's the thing. And, and but but let let's go. Let's talk about ethics a little bit more. Because what ends up happening is in this day and age, we all kind of know that media in general, and photography and photojournalism in particular, are under tremendous economic pressure. Yes. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a horrible thing, and I'll explain that later. Good. But right now, there's a lot of pressure, or at least there are there are certain individuals that feel that there's a lot of pr- pressure to produce not only amazing storytelling images, but just amazing images. So they, 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 they feel this pressure uh, by, maybe they feel it directly from an editor, maybe they feel it directly from their fellow photographers, or maybe they just put it on themselves. Yeah. But what you find is a lot of people that are cheating, yes. either pre, during, or post uh, capture, that they're doing it because they feel this pressure. Or, I, you know, I've got to produce the perfect imagery. Or subconsciously. Uh, a lot of All this right. stuff is not subconscious. I'm uh, with you. I'm they, just throwing not. it in there. Just throwing it in there. No, 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 no. It's, I mean, look, when you tell somebody to do something, when you move something in Photoshop, You're you know, when you, <clears throat> when you set things up, that's very conscious. Sure. You know, and there are people all the time. I love hearing all this. Well, I was just doing it for myself, and I mixed up the files. Oh, screw that. You know, <laughs> you know I, I, don't, I don't believe it at all. Here's the thing. When you've got an industry that, for right or wrong, has been influenced greatly by television. Oh, my God. And I'm sorry to cast aspersions on television, but television yeah, yeah. has there. practices that that don't even come close to the journalist <laughs> journalistic ethics that we do. Because even even in the news divisions now, too many of the people that run those news divisions look at them as part of entertainment. And so whatever it takes to get, quote unquote, the visuals. Now, they don't really mean that because if they really meant whatever it takes to get to visuals, then they would spend the time. They'll spend right. the money. That's right. But they may not spend the time to get the really good visuals that they need. That's why we have photographers who gin up reactions in the background and, and things like that. And then these people, because they, you know, because there are other people in our part of the industry that think, oh, well, they understand the moving image better than still photographers do. <laughs> They come in, they have too much influence with what we do, and so they're, they're pushing individuals to, bake, to break these, these boundaries. And, you know, look, I've been in this business a long time. I'm fairly highly decorated. I'm yeah. opinionated. I'm loud. And I will stand up and say no. But I'm, I, you know, as a, as a colleague of mine was pointing out the other day, I'm an exception to all of this stuff, whether I'm in my industry or I'm in academia, I'm an exception. Lots of people don't push back against authority. Lots of people don't have, you know, the, the strength and that's not a condemnation of them. I understand that to, to, to say, no, I'm not going to do that if they feel that their job is on the line. And, and, and I get that. Uh, What has to happen is that more people, the public really has to stand up. And I think they're kind of doing that and say, you know, we don't want this anymore. We're not interested in this anymore. Tell us the truth. So earlier I said something about how, you know, people are not interested in documentary, you know, truthful documentary anymore. Mm-hmm. So I, I would, that, I would yeah. argue that that's yeah. the exact opposite of what's happening in the world today. They're, they're starving them into it. Yes. Well, no, no, I don't, I don't, well, so what's no, happening I'm saying is when inadvertently, you, they're starving because of so much fake 
they're knowing well, that, that, that it's crap. That could be. That could be. But I think the thing about it is, is, the, is that people in general are coming to understand that the world around them as it is, is a pretty interesting place. Sure. And it doesn't need, you know, Guild, fiction right, as much. Exactly. I mean, look at this. Think about it this way. In my business, one of the things that has really saved a lot, financially, a lot of photojournalists is the, is the incredible rise of documentary wedding. Are there still some things that are set up? Yes. But people want an accurate yep. story of, their, of, of one of the biggest days of their lives. Absolutely. And it has spread into other big parts of their lives. You know that there was, for the longest time, there was you know, this documentation of, of natural childbirth. Well, that's kind of been cut off because the hospitals have learned that, oh, well, when you document that, you also document our screw-ups. So we're not going to let you in anymore. Liability. But I know that there are people out there trying to make a living and actually do on actually documenting high-end super-dollar vacations. You know, look at look – at, there's the documentary film channel. There's the documentary unit at HBO and Showtime. Sure. Um, 20 years ago – Unless you were a geek, you couldn't name, much less have seen, the documentary films that were nominated for Academy Awards. Chances are now you've seen them. You know, RGB, uh, the, 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 you know, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, all yep. these other things that are out there that people are seeing in mainstream. They're documentaries. Right. And... I mean, people, I mean, there's a, there's a whole documentary industry out there now. And so people are interested in seeing it. So, and then the last thing I want to say is this, <clears throat> it's affecting, it's affecting the newspaper and traditional <clears throat> media the way it is because there are colleagues that I have that are stuck with the notion of that they're photographers. They're not journalists and storytellers and visual storytellers they're photographers and so things like moving images and podcasts and the mixture of audio and video or audio and stills and video and graphics and all of that stuff is threatening to them yeah. and it is because they are interested in one thing and one thing only this this printed thing as opposed to telling a story right so that's one of the reasons why when I came here, I changed sort of the, the, the whole slant of what it is that we do in this program. Right. Now the school, the photography school here at RIT teaches photography. We are in a unique position in, 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 in that respect. Almost every other photojournalism program in the country has to teach photography along with it. So they're limited. We aren't. We don't have to focus on photography per se as much as everybody else does. So what we really do to a high, high, high degree is focus on storytelling. That's and why I how use to the do word, it visually. Huh? That's why I use the word in the intro. Exactly. Yeah. And and that's the thing. And so so dovetailing it back to everything you're talking about here. So you're talking about digital versus analog. Mm -hmm. The thing that I love about digital is that it allows me as a storyteller more tools. That's right. It allows me uh, more speed. It allows me more versatility. That's right. In 1996, seven, I can't remember. I went on, uh, I did a story for the Dallas Morning News. I got on the Trans-Siberian Railroad in Vladivostok, Russia, and <laughs> took it across to Moscow. Now, if you just get on the train, that's and stay on it. It's eleven and a half days, and tell and I and trust me, if you did that, you're nuts when you get off at the end, because the longest break you have is two hours, and that's only one time. You average fifteen to twenty minutes per stop. So what we did was not only did we do that, but what what we did was we stopped in several places across the the country to um to to talk about the rebirth of religion in a former communist country and what that was happening. And we also wanted to get into the hinterlands to see what was going on with, you know, average Russians. Cause most journalists were going to St. Pete, 
St. Petersburg or Moscow. That's sort of like going to L.A. and New York and saying, well, what's it like in the United States? And forgetting, America. quote, unquote, the flyover country. Sure. So I tell you this because this was 1996. Tell me about the Internet in 1996. Mm. It really didn't exist that much. But Hansen and Kodak and Nikon had already made the digital camera. Exactly. But I didn't do that. Okay. And, and it, there, okay. there was somebody that had preceded me on this trip. And I sort of, you know, I sort of borrowed some of the some of the places that they stopped. But here, <laughs> my point is, is I took along an audio recorder. Smart man. To record, you know, uh, sounds on the train and, sure. and religious ceremonies and all that. And why did I do that? I didn't do it for the Internet. I didn't do it for anything other than I knew that when I got back, that we were going to have to put together a show mm -hmm. for the powers that be in order to get space to run these pictures. And so what I did was I took all of this audio and edited it together as a soundtrack to these pictures and then gave them a multimedia presentation of this trip across Russia. And we ended up with, uh, with a multi-day uh, not a special section, but a multi-day series that ended up being something on the order of 16 open pages, which wow. was a lot, and almost all of it was in color. And so, you know, I was doing things. I wanted to tell stories back then that had more than just still images. And so, uh, you know, when we started getting into video, it's like, great. Just the truth be told, I wanted to make movies when I was a kid, but in small town Kentucky in the 60s and the 70s, that just wasn't possible. Hold on one so, second. I just want to say yeah. a couple of things that I've been hearing and I haven't said. First of all, in one of my books, Edward R. Murrow is the quote that opens the book. And yep. I think that's exactly what you're talking about, that we have an instrument here that can do wonderful things. It's just wires in a box. And it's up mm -hmm. to us to do it. And this is to your integrity point. Uh, the other thing is Arab Spring. Last mm -hmm. week was included in the lecture. And yep. I could not agree with you more. And also the Twitter account on the raid on Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. That was also. So I'm valid. And that's what you need me to, William. Uh, but I am agreeing with you wholeheartedly. I'm validating everything you're saying in my mind and back to me, even to my own students. Uh, everything you're saying, I could not agree with more. Uh, storytelling, being objective, not letting anything interfere with that, and how badly that can, when you do let it interfere, hurt society, hurt the country, hurt individuals. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I got to tell you, I've been quiet for the longest time ever on my podcast because of no 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 let me get to the reason why <laughs> that wasn't meant because i wouldn't give in, i wasn't breathing no <laughs> no that's not meant in a negative way what it truly means i could not agree with you more there was nothing you were saying i was going to jump in on if anything to say is to agree it's bizarre we we're kind of close in age we've been through a similar kind of world uh and you know you again with more so obviously on the journal journalism front uh, but it's abs it's like a thousand percent correct. And and everything you've been saying is, is beyond on the money. That's why I haven't opened my mouth said a word to try to stop you. The freaky part for me is the, the, the examples you're naming. And I'm just going, oh, my God, that was yesterday. That was the day before when I was in class. And I think it's because we feel that these kids, students, young people need mm -hmm. to hear it because they don't have a reference to history. No, they don't. They, they really honestly no. don't. Well, not only did they not have the reference to history, but, but you know, we I, could, know. I could go off on a whole <laughs> other rant about secondary education. And, you know, look, I was fortunate enough. My parents cared enough about me and my education that they sent me to a, a local small college prep school. It wasn't a boarding school. And I had an amazing education coming up. Plus, I had parents that, that pushed me to be in, an independent thinker. Some people would say too independent, but, you know. Okay. So um, everything balances. Well, mm. um, <laughs> and, and the thing about it is, you know, there, there was a little while where I could see this transitioning happening in my students. I've been teaching 
full-time just long enough that I could see it happen. Yeah, yeah. Where we went from, from a cadre that had some of No Child Left Behind mm-hmm. to the cadre that grew up entirely within it. Mm-hmm. And critical thinking God. is, is not taught for God. the most part. And so critical thinking isn't taught, and we're learning very, very harshly that civics is not taught. Not at all. That history, you know, if you've been reading uh, at what the, the Texas Education Council or whatever it's called, Education Board is doing to the curriculum there, yep, yep. you know, some of the things that they're taking out and putting in and emphasizing like, and de-emphasizing. Like Hillary Clinton's name. Well, Hillary Clinton, and you know, and I can understand why, you know, but she is still an important figure. I don't understand, uh, 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 what's her name? The, 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 the deaf and blind woman. Um, Helen Keller. You know, the great historic, huh? Helen Keller. Helen Keller. Yeah. They're taking Helen Keller out. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, you know, I and, think and they, look, they and, probably... and here's the other thing. Let me just say this, and this is, you know, uh, for those of you out there that are conservative Republicans, uh, put your fingers in your ears. You know, one of the things that, that, that irritates me the most is there was a plank. I think they may have taken it out, but I'm not sure. There was a plank two years ago, three years ago, in the Texas Republican Party plank that explicitly said they did not want critical thinking skills taught because what it did was it, it, it caused the children to question their parents and, and other influences, meaning religion and politics. Hey, I love the uneducated. Remember they said that? Yes. I love that. Uneducated. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, it gets back to all of this stuff. I mean, I kind of started part of this by talking about the lack of ethics among these, these students. Now, you have to give them a certain amount of credit for loyalty to their friends. Yes. I think that's great. Try But it's, yes, that's the point is it, it, it's, it's a lack of education and thoughtfulness about society as a whole. It's only about me and what is directly in my circle of influence. Or my friends As opposed on to society as a whole. It's friends, on fa- it's friends on Facebook mentality. Facebook has established a tribal quality, or not established, but emboldened the tribal quality. And this, we could talk forever about this. Yeah. I mean, but dude, we're not gonna. Well, we could, but I think I'm gonna. I think we're gonna break the internet. Uh, and I would love to talk to you more and more and more if you have the time. Not today, obviously, but a couple. Uh, they gave me this podcast. I still can't believe the school did this. And it's. <laughs> I was. I looked at them like what? Uh, they actually well, gave me a micro. Go. Yeah, I know. I think there's another reason. You know, academia as well as I do, William. Yeah. Hoist, hoist him on his own petard. Uh, right. And I don't think they realized. Fortunately for me, the friends I have and yeah. the people who actually like me and respect me. And I've had Mitchell Ridgie, Rhode Island School of Design trustee, alumni, you know, yeah. uh, board of trustees. I've had Jimmy Levin from Stony Brook University, uh, Dr. Uh, Michael Hines from Patrick yeah. Bedford, superintendent, who is friends with Sir Ken Robinson. Oh, exactly. That's amazing. Yeah, I know. And I just kept saying that over and over to Mike. So where are my tickets? Where are my tickets? Because he's actually coming to, <laughs> exactly. He's coming to Patchogue. Patchogue, Long Island, well, Sir Ken Robinson. Well, you know, here's the deal. Good. I, I've, I've really only seen that one talk, that one TED talk of mm-hmm, his. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, right now he's perfect and pristine in my, in my, in my mind. Yeah, leave it. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to mess that up. I look. You know, I've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of my heroes. Yes, you have. <laughs> I, however, am am rarely disappointed when I meet them because I have a pretty realistic view about sure. successful people, especially like meeting the Who. And now, as long as we're talking about the Who, please bring it up now. All I was going to say is, I'd like to take a, a slight moment. Your the the cost of this this lengthy rant of mine Go. is, I'd like to pitch my book. That's it is called Joined Together with the Band. It is pictures of mine from beginning. The very the, the earliest picture in there is from 1976. 
it's basically about my journey from being a super crazy fan up in the rafters to becoming part of their inner circle. And it's pictures that sort of tell that story, starting from the outside and working my way in. And um, Where do I'm we get very, it? very proud of it. Where do we get uh, it, William? Where do the viewers? You can get it. You can get it at, at our website called www.jointogetherwiththebook.com. All one word. It's rather cumbersome, but if you can remember join together with the band, it's pretty easy. Here's the other thing. Uh, there are other places that you can buy it. Please. I would ask that you buy it from our, our website because 50% of the profits from this book will go to Teen Cancer America. Wow. And let me just tell you about that very, very briefly. Yeah, what yeah. it is, is it, it is a, it is a charity that Pete and Roger started, Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey of the Who started <laughs> in Great Britain as Teen Cancer Trust because Roger discovered that when a teenager is unfortunately stricken with cancer, they're either put in, in the adolescent child ward or they're put in with grownups. They don't have any place to go that's, you know, that's made for teens. So they started this thing to build out cancer wards across Great Britain, and they succeeded. Now they brought it to the United States. They're trying to do the same thing here. This is my way of giving back to them for the, for the kindness and generosity they've shown me over the decades. And so that's why I would encourage you to go and, and buy it at our website. And if you're feeling especially generous, there are uh, a limited number of signed copies for a premium price. Um, if you buy a signed copy, you can send it to me and I'll personalize it for you. But if you buy one and you want me to sign it, I'm going to send you to the website just because <laughs> I believe in this cause. I believe in this cause and I think it's really important and I, I want to do my part. Trust me, if I was just in this to make money, I wouldn't give 50% of the profits to Teen Cancer America. And you wouldn't care where they bought it because Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whatever, it's going to give you some form of royalty. So it's not exactly. about you. And they still are, but not as yeah, much. Exactly. So let me just do one thing here. Join together with the book.com. You got to do www. Right. Very important. Oh, really? Okay. Join together with the book. Com. Uh, this book is Your Travels with the Who from 1976 to today. Uh, photographs of William Snyder, the professor for the director of the photojournalism department at Rochester Institute of Technology. And luckily for me, I think I can almost call him a friend now. And this has been sure. beyond. <laughs> you can call me all you want. That doesn't mean I'm picking up. Uh, <laughs> this has been uh, amazing. Uh, best podcast I, in mind. This is number 13, and in this case, it's just become Lucky 13. Uh, this is kind of amazing. I, I, I want to do this again with you. Please, sure. for the rest of it, we could talk about any of the, the, the rock and roll history that you hold. Uh, the Who, obviously, Eddie Vedder, and I'm sure you have countless others. The ethics part of this discussion could not have been more on point. It's impossible. Today, it's the thing that's lacking. Uh, John Maida is a hero of mine. He is Mitchell's friend, of course. Everybody else is everybody else's friend. But anyhow, it, John Maida is the, was the uh, president of RISD, uh, director of the MIT Media Lab, yada, yada, and yada. The guy's amazing. But ethics always comes up because now technology has become so easy. So what are we left with? We're left with whether or not we should do it. That great line from Jurassic Park, while you realized you could do it, you never realized if you should do it. Yeah. And I think that's the core of this. William Snyder, uh, the husband of Amy Louie Snyder, and the only reason why I got to talk to you. <laughs> Dude, I could not thank you more. I really, really could. I don't want to cut you off, but they tell me at the studio anything over an hour and we're cutting it, Pat, so I'm not going to let that happen. But I truly yeah. want to thank you for today. Uh, www.jointogetherwiththebook.com. Uh, William Snyder is the gentleman's name, S-N-Y-D-E-R. You should know that name. All you got to do is type that in. I could not stop the photos. Just happens to be the director of photojournalism 
at Rochester Institute of Technology. And I think, can you fly? Actually, no, you can't fly. Uh, you've done a no. tremendous amount of things, William. And thank you so much for today. Rock. Paper. Pixels. Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit WCWP.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.